so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome back to another episode of Weekly Tech, a technology and ethics podcast focused on navigating this digital age with wisdom. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning, which is designed to help you think deeply about the pressing technology issues of the day and also to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by my friend, Dr. Andrew Walker, who's an associate professor of Christian ethics at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And we talk about his new book from Brazos Press, Liberty for All. Andrew Walker also serves as the executive director of the Carl F.H. Henry Institute for Evangelical Engagement in Louisville, Kentucky. He previously served as a senior fellow in Christian ethics at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He's the author of God and the Transgender Debate, which was named 2017 Gospel Coalition's best book in public theology. He also is the co-author of Marriage Is, How Marriage Transforms Society and Cultivates Human Flourishing, and the co-editor of the Gospel for Life series. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Walker, thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in studying these issues around Christian ethics and religious liberty? Yeah, Jason, it's great to be with you. Um, so I I have always loved um, politics, culture, ethics style issues. And right at a seminary, started working for a public policy organization in Kentucky. And then from there, went to work for an organization in Washington, D.C., the, the Heritage Foundation. And then um, I worked with you for about six and a half years at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And, you know, honestly, it was being at the ERLC, um, partly because, you know, the title of Religious Liberty is in the organization's name, yeah. um, but then also learning more about the fact of, of who we are as Baptists and our tradition itself, that really— um, I can I can point to my experience at the ERLC as what awakened me to the importance of religious liberty, and what ultimately led me uh, to to write my dissertation on the subject. And um, you know, I write about this in the book. I tell the story how it's actually religious liberty that made me more it, it made me convictionally Baptist, hmm. even though I had graduated from a Southern Baptist seminary and had been a part of Baptist churches. I was mostly a Baptist because they believed the Bible. Mm. Um, but as I began to understand what religious liberty is and how actually central it is to public engagement, um, it it made me understand that the most consistent understanding of Baptist or the most consistent understanding of religious liberty actually leads you to Baptist ecclesiology, mm-hmm. um, centrally because Baptist ecclesiology has first off always 
championed religious liberty on the grounds that it's important to make distinctions between the church and the world. And how we understand the church is to be those who have made um, voluntary professions of faith themselves, who are then a part of a regenerate community that is distinct from the world, who then take their faith and live it into all aspects of their lives. Um, and so it's really um, the ERLC and the Baptist tradition that um, has or is responsible for, for making me who I am today. Well, one of the things I really appreciate about your book is how clear you are of defining religious liberty, helping us to understand kind of the limits of religious liberty in terms of how we view government, how we view ourselves, and kind of how we view the mission of God. But religious liberty is a concept that's often misunderstood, especially in the wider culture, but even within Christian circles and often misapplied uh, in the public square. We often are caricatured, Christians are, of only defending our own liberty, our own religious liberty, and not that of other faiths and other um, understandings. Can you help us define what is religious liberty and how it relates to our understanding of the role of government in our lives? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I would like to define religious liberty as uh, it's, it's a theological principle that individuals come to understand and grasp truths uh, about ultimate matters pertaining to religion. Um, and they do this because of, of the rational mind discerning particular truths and how the mind grasps these truths. It has to be done voluntarily for it to be authentic, and it can't be coerced. Um, and so then when someone grasps these truths uh, pertaining to ultimate reality, we know that the response then is to live in light of these transformational truths that you believe reflect ultimate reality, which means you're going to want to live these deepest truths out at every corner of your life, because the deep, these deepest truths are an expression of of what you believe to be the most important things in the universe. And so religious liberty is merely a principle that allows people to um, self-constitute themselves in alignment with their grasp of truth and then to live that truth out freely and uncoerced in every aspect of their life. And um, kind of the, the Christian spin on this is, to me, religious liberty helps secure a forum for authentic gospel proclamation um, it's a forerunner. So it, 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 it is in the background to how people come to accept the gospel. And then finally, it's a pathway for the expression of our, our gospel ethics. And so all of a sudden, religious liberty, which people often treat as this you know, ephemeral political issue, all of a sudden it's been brought up into a central fixture of, of all aspects of our faith, how we come to understand the gospel, uh, how we come to share the gospel, and how we come to live the gospel out in our lives. Yeah. I know in modern culture, we talk a lot about rights. We have a, a right to privacy or a right to X, Y, and Z. In the book, I think you really helpfully describe religious liberty as a penultimate right. What do you mean by penultimate, mm -hmm. and how does that understanding help frame religious liberty in the context of kind of the grand storyline or meta narrative of Scripture? Right. So when I talk about religious liberty being a penultimate right— um, first off, I'm, penultimate means it's it's prior to the most ultimate, and so the the most ultimate reality is God, Christ, gospel, and so penultimate matters or penultimate issues pertain to 
effectively those issues tied to this day and age, uh, issues pertaining to politics, the public square, life in a fallen age. And so religious liberty helps us understand that man's ultimate duty is to God. Mm-hmm. But if man's ultimate duty is to God, that means that man's ultimate duty isn't to the state pertaining to religious matters. And so we would say that the state has um, or the individuals have penultimate rights, meaning um, that they have a right to religious freedom pertaining to law and politics, but they don't have an ultimate right to religious liberty before God. In fact, mm-hmm. this is one of the big areas of confusion is if we say that people have an ultimate right to religious liberty, what we end up saying is that God does not enforce judgment against those who rebel against him under the auspices of liberty. That's not at all what I mean. In fact, I'm explicit in the book that religious liberty is going to come to an end. It's a provisional temporal reality designed for us um, to figure out how to live amongst different people groups and different belief systems within this fallen age. But when this age is over, uh, and Christians talk about the new creation, well, when judgment happens, when the new creation happens, God is going to sort out false belief from true belief. And at that point, religious liberty is no longer a card someone gets to have in their back pocket. Rather, religious liberty pertains to a right that people have right now to be undisturbed or unbothered Um, in terms of how their mind grasps religious truths, simply because um, I can't believe for someone else. People have to come to convictions about morality and religion on their own. And that's not to say that all religions and all moralities are equal. Certainly not. Uh, But it is for us to understand that um, people who come to those conclusions about religion or morality, uh, they might be mistaken, but they think that they are right in terms of how they're grasping these realities. And so if they are being sincere in those convictions, and if religion is something that's outside the domain or authority of the state, what do we do with these individuals? Well, in ancient times past, if you disagreed with the religious consensus, um, you could be executed or banished from society. So all of a sudden we're making second-class citizens based on religious belief. I don't think that's biblical. I don't think God has ordered the world for us to make determinations uh, about someone's citizenship based on whether they're making proper theological confession. Yeah. Um, God has not authorized the government to adjudicate wrongs uh, between God and man. Uh, God has authorized government to adjudicate wrongs uh, with, between intra-human disputes, not between God and man um, in general. So there's, there's a big issue of just jurisdictional competency here, that because the state is not designed to be a a theological referee, um, it shouldn't be in the religious game whatsoever. Uh, It can can accommodate to religion and allow religion to function in civil society. uh, And government, I think, within certain constraints, uh, can can bob and weave through some certain religious matters. uh, But in general, the state is not there to be a theological referee. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful way of putting it. And obviously, I have a couple of questions later on that I want to get to about kind of the extent of the role of government and the way that we think about religious liberty. But before we get there, 
One of the other ways that I felt was really helpful in the book about how you understand and ground religious liberty is you tie it back to uh, the conception of the image of God or the Imago Dei. Many listeners mm-hmm. may be familiar with the image of God and how that is the the baseline. That is the foundation for how we understand human dignity and how we approach and care for other people. How does religious liberty and the image of God tie together, and how does it how does that understanding affect the way that we navigate the tensions in a pluralistic society? Mm-hmm. Well, when we read in Genesis chapter 1 that God made humanity in his image, theologians debate the full ramifications of what it means to be made in God's image. Uh, but generally speaking, we can say uh, there are some particular aspects that stand out to us about being made, being made in God's image that bear relevance to the, this conversation. First off, we would say that uh, humanity possesses reason meaning they are able to discern right and wrong. They're able to use their minds. Uh, humans possess a conscience. The conscience reveals a witness to a law written on the heart that individuals are called to respond to. Uh, individuals are called to self-constitute themselves, which I know is a big fancy academic term, but self-constitution is essentially the idea that individuals desire to make meaningful sense of their lives and to live authentic lives. And to do that, that requires a degree of freedom. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you have conscience, you have reason, you have freedom, you have moral agency involved. Uh, And again, this is not to say that how someone, what someone believes is necessarily right. It means that um, you and I may disagree with the Muslim individual. Uh, But neither you or I can enter into the mind of the Muslim individual and change their mind uh, coercively or externally. All we can do is seek to persuade and reason and appeal to their own desire for self-constitution for them to come to a saving knowledge of who Christ is. Um, and, And moreover, I think we see these categories of religious liberty Uh, in our everyday experience, even if you're not religious. I write about this in the book. I call them the three A's of religious liberty, the notion of authority, adoration, and authenticity. Uh, Let me just briefly state what those are. When you look at something like authority, that's simply the, the reference that every single person is living their life according to some source. Perhaps it's God, perhaps, perhaps it's not. Um, When you look at a concept like adoration, um, it means that humans are reflexively and innately worshiping beings. And we're going to give worship to whatever is uh, the center of authority in our lives. And then third, you have this category of authenticity, which means people desire to live lives of meaning and truth as best as they can grasp it. And so every single person, Christian or non-Christian, is living according to some authority they're engaging in the act of adoration, and they are tr- seeking to live um, lives of authenticity. And I think that is a reflection of the image of God that God has put inside all of us, simply by virtue of the fact that we're not automatons, um, we're not robots, we're thinking, feeling, intuiting um, creatures. Yeah, I think in the book you really hit on a concept of kind of defining individualism or the individual. I think one of the great tensions of today surrounding a lot of cultures kind of persistent pursuit of a complete and personal moral autonomy or as some call it an expressive individualism. 
Can you help us understand the difference between individualism and maybe a more communal individuality that we actually see in the scriptures? Sure. That's a good question. When we think about um, individuality, there, there's nothing inherently unbiblical about individuality insofar as indiv- individuality um, develops as a result of people coming to encounter the world and to live meaningful lives within the world. Uh, traditionally speaking, at least in a more classical Christian tradition, individuality has been a product of how you understand yourself in society, um, norms of authority around family, culture, and religion, uh, which can be good things. Uh, the problem with individualism, as far as expressive individualism, as the term is often used, is to understand the self as unencumbered by any type of external authority outside the person himself or herself. So it's casting off religion, it's casting off tradition, it's casting off the family, and instead it's it's an understanding of the human person solely derived from the basis of their um, autonomous will and their autonomous reason. And this couldn't actually be any more at odds with an understanding of individualism properly constrained under the idea that people, if they're made in the image of God, have a natural telos, have a natural end to their existence. And expressive individualism entirely casts that off and says there is no natural purpose or telos. All there is, is the will seeking to maximize the will. Yeah, often I know when we talk about religious liberty, especially in culture, Often, religious liberty is relegated simply to the church-state relationship, with some arguing that religious liberty can only be impeded by the state. It's kind of a, a government, a governmental right. It's something that we navigate with the contours of government. But with the rise of powerful institutions like social media and technology companies, a lot of people are beginning to question, with especially with the immense power and even control over the flow of information in our society, is do we have – does religious liberty uh, extend past the bounds of the church-state relationship into other sectors of our public life? So how do the concepts of religious liberty apply to actors maybe outside of the state, and how does that tie ultimately to our understanding of the, the common good? Yeah, I mean that's that's the nature of the conflict right now, isn't it? I mean we have um, we're we're wanting to solve debates about religious liberty through the Supreme Court, um, which means we're casting off responsibility to civil society to resolve these debates deliberatively and asking the strong hand of the government to solve these debates for us. Uh, and this is particularly felt in issues around um, sexual identity versus religious liberty um, conflicts. And I think this is, uh, as you mentioned, the notion of the common good. Uh, The common good ought to be a concept that is allowing for degrees of difference to exist in society. Uh, The problem is that as time has gone on, especially when you look at the progressive left, there is no desire to allow individuals to pursue uh, the common good of their religious community if that common good of the religious community runs afoul of the new orthodoxy of, of the progressive left. And so I think the response to all of this is for us to, um, you know, obviously we should seek to persuade um, and to convince people why we're right. But if we can't persuade people um, that we're right, I think it's important for us to at least persuade people um, to have an understanding that though they may disagree with us, 
the convictions we hold are rational, that they're advancing some good purpose around issues of sexual se uh, sexuality and gender identity. Um, but there's just disagreement. And this perpetual um, kicking the can of the Supreme Court is uh, it's not a way to, to settle cultural disputes. All it does is make entrenched winners and entrenched losers. Yeah, I know the, that concept of religious liberty often as we see kind of isolated to the church-state relationship. But I do think there's legitimate questions and conversation that needs to be had around issues of content moderation, issues of the power and the influence of these technology companies. It's a conversation we obviously could keep going on and on and kind of dig into. But I think that's an, a real area for uh, Christians to step into and to proclaim a, an understanding of uh, religious freedom and religious expression and free expression in a very pluralistic and diverse society. But as technology continues to open up more and more doors for opportunity for Christians to engage in the public square, what does that practically look like to you? What are maybe some tips that you would pass on to listeners to navigate some of these issues of religious liberty, maybe outside of the specific church-state relationship? But how do we model what it looks like to pursue religious freedom um, and that type of freedom for individuals who might not believe the same things we believe? Well, I mean, I think it's important for us to understand that even if you aren't a Christian, the freedoms that we enjoy as Americans, um, they all come from a backdrop informed by the First Amendment and this concept of liberty. Um, and so, you know, what I said earlier, authenticity, adoration, and authority, um, those are categories that all persons are operating off of, Christian and non-Christian alike. And I think one of the solutions here is, is to understand that everyone's liberty is ultimately bound up in the others. Uh, and so, you know, I know this isn't going to end all of the debates or solve all of the debates for that matter, but it is important for us to understand that in American context, in an American context, rights travel together. Um, and so my rights are bound up with the non-Christians' rights. And if we want to promote an ecosystem of liberty for all, uh, that means you might have to find yourself defending the plausibility of someone's belief, even if you don't agree with the content of their belief. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful one. And you see that especially around where Christians have stepped in to advocate uh, for religious liberty for Muslim groups or other different faiths, um, right. the ability to build synagogues or to build mosques, um, the that understanding of Christians defending the rights uh, for everyone to pursue their own religious understandings and kind of understandings of these ultimate things, but also doing so within the bounds of the common good. It's a very complex situation, obviously. We're not going to solve it all in a 30-minute podcast. Um, but one of the things I want to do for listeners as we st uh, as we end our time today is what are a couple resources, one or two resources that you would recommend outside your book that would help people to dig a little bit deeper on some of these religious freedom and free expression issues that we've been talking about today? Sure. So a couple of resources I would point people towards uh, would be, it, it's a pretty academic volume and sadly kind of expensive, but J. Daryl Charles has a book on religious freedom and natural law that I think is just an invaluable resource to point you towards. And then there's actually a two-volume series uh, from Cambridge University Press with Timothy Shaw from Georgetown as one of the editors. And it's a two-volume set of books looking at the historical rooting of religious liberty, and then some of the debates in a contemporary context. Now, again, both are academic, but you know, I got to be honest with you. If we're going to engage in 
the religious liberty issues, you kind of got to do some homework. You got to familiarize yourself with history, with some constitutional theory, with some ethics. And there's lots of good resources out there, uh, but we got to go digging. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast is because I think one, your book is one of the most accessible books. While it's deep and you've done obviously done your research in it, it's a very helpful book for those to pick up. So I highly recommend listeners to grab a copy of Andrew's new book. We'll link to that in the show notes so you can grab a copy as well as the books that he talked about earlier. Andrew, I just want to thank you so much, not only for your work, but also taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us here on Weekly Tech. I'm really grateful for the way that you approach these issues, especially in a balanced and careful and nuanced, and in many ways, a very grace-filled way throughout all of your writing. Well, Jason, it's great to be with you, man, and I'm just thankful um, for you to be a friend. From all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoy Weekly Tech, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to help share the word about Weekly Tech with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Walker and learn more about his work, including the books that he recommended at the end of the show in the show notes. You can also sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing each Monday morning. It's designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day, as well as stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.